Welcome to the Story Talks Back. Almost everything that we remember, think about, or imagine is a story. Stories entertain us, inform us, and even define us. They have upsides, and they have downsides. This podcast explores the power of story in every aspect of our lives. I'm Dave Stanton. Thank you for joining us. As the founder, artistic director, and first violinist of Kronos Quartet, David Harrington has played a central role in developing a musical repertoire for the 21st century and beyond. He has worked with hundreds of composers across the globe and played thousands of concerts worldwide, from Carnegie Hall to Shanghai to Sydney. Now in its 47th year, Kronos has become perhaps the most important force in new music today exploding the boundaries of the quartet repertoire as it has commissioned over 1,000 compositions and arrangements. With over 60 recordings and two Grammy Awards to its credit, Kronos is both well-established and iconoclastic. Through its 50 for the Future project, Kronos is also bypassing conventional publishing and artistic systems to make the music of new and well-known composers alike available to everyone. Well, welcome to the Story Talks Back, David. We really appreciate your taking the time to talk to us about stories and your experiences with them. Good to be here. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to start because I know stories are on your mind these days, in particular because of a project you're working on. Can you, do you want to talk a little about why stories are so relevant to your next record? Well, we have a, a recording coming out that's been... Uh, a long time in the making and it's something that I've wanted to do for many years and we didn't really have the ability to do it we didn't know the right people we it, somehow it just it wasn't the right time mm. and um, you know there, there's a musician that I wish I so wish I would have called when it was possible Mm. And and that musician was Pete Seeger. And everyone I've talked to in the last few years, oh, you should have just given him a call. Of course he would. <laughs> you know, he would have invited you for a cup of coffee or tea or whatever. And somehow I just didn't have the, um, well, I didn't have the number, but I could have gotten it easily enough. But... Uh, his music and his uh, what he brought to our society and our culture has been um, a valued part of my family for as long as I can remember. Mm. Uh, I first heard him when I was in grade school. And when I was in high school, there was the Carnegie Hall concert record. And, and uh -huh. uh, um, Eventually, we had kids, and Pete Seeger's records were part of our daily listening. Come to find out, uh, our daughter plays Pete Seeger records. She's a third grade teacher. She uses his music in her classroom. Mm. And so at, it was interesting. Kronos was playing in my daughter's class 
and we had arranged to do We Shall Overcome with two classes of third graders. And one of the teachers brought his guitar and, and we did this and, and it, was, it was a beautiful experience. And afterwards, Mark Rosenberg, the other teacher said, you know, tomorrow is Pete Seeger's 99th birthday. Of course, he had died a few years before that. And, and so I immediately thought, well, that means next year is his 100th year. And so right at that moment, I thought, okay, now's the right time. And this was a couple of years ago now. Um, it seemed like, okay, now I know how to, how to proceed. You see, one of the great things about Pete Seeger is uh, when he would go to a new country that he'd never been to, he'd learn, he'd learn a song from that country. Mm. And he'd bring it back to our country. Mm. And um, that's something that Kronos has in common with Pete Seeger because we, we've been doing that too. I, at a certain point, I, I began to realize what he did that's kind of how he approached music. You know, he, he discovered things, he found things that felt right. Mm. And he taught people, he taught his audience how to sing. Mm. <laughs> and um, uh, to me, it, it's so beautiful what, what he did, so beautiful. And, and so I wanted to celebrate that. And um, we've found a, a really wonderful group of collaborators, um, our longtime arranger, Jacob Garchik, uh, who incidentally my kids went to school with. So I've known Jacob for many, many years now. Oh, <laughs> so I grow up and, uh, uh, and he's become a master arranger for Kronos. And, um, so this one of the the main parts of the recording, and why I think it might be of interest to you, it's called storyteller. Mm -hmm. And Pete Seeger was a storyteller. Sure. And by using samples of his concerts, his interviews, his just his recorded documents. Mm -hmm. uh, Jacob was able to make this beautiful kind of story about the storyteller, Pete Seeger. Mm. Uh, it seems like the right time that an album should start with the song, Which Side Are You On? <laughs> mm. And uh, and that single is will be coming out on September 16th. Okay. Um, and the thirds, there are three singles in advance of the release on October 9th. The third uh -huh. one is uh, this amazing song, absolutely amazing song. So I have to step back and tell you a little story here. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, Regan and I got invited to um, an amazing um, event, and it was it's likely to be the, the last major gathering of the original civil rights leaders. Mm. I suppose maybe John Lewis's funeral might be. Many of the, the original leaders are, are getting very um, frail and mm. quite elderly at this point. Anyway, so we got invited to this. And at that dinner, uh, there was Andrew Young, there was... Uh, um, I can't even 
recount uh, the names of all the people that were there. Joan Baez was there and she sang. And um, one of the songs she sang just completely blew me away. And it was uh, the president sang Amazing Grace. Mm -hmm. And that song, I believe, would not exist without the work of Pete Seeger. So that song had to be on this album. <laughs> and we had, to, we had to find someone who would bring everything there is in, in life to that song. And I think we found that person. And, and so McLeet, the uh, Ethiopian-American singer wow. uh, living here in, in uh, San Francisco, uh, joins us on, the, on that song. And um, uh, so that, that's track number two. And then, and then track number three, we, we thought, you know, after the, emotion, the, the emotion of that song, uh, and when you hear it, you'll understand what I mean, I think. But uh, there needed to be this repose, this place of thought. And, you know, I mentioned that Seeger, when he went to a place he'd never been, he would learn a song. Well, when he went to India, he learned this beautiful song that uh, had been sung on uh, the salt march that Gandhi led. And so we found a way of making our version of that song. Hmm. And, uh, and there's Kisses Sweeter Than Wine, and uh, my composition teacher, again, Ken Benchoff, and you might remember Ken wrote the very first piece for right. Kronos, which includes uh, includes the uh, elements of the song Kisses Sweeter Than Wine. Uh, the Weavers brought that into our culture. Um, hmm. Of course, there's Turn, Turn, Turn. There's Where Have All the Flowers Gone. There's um, so, so anyway, th this is a celebration of Right. Pete Seeger, as seen through the work of Kronos and our friends. Right. Now, I mean, Seeger, Seeger's recordings obviously have the benefit of having words. So there's a story in the words that people can sort of immediately grasp. Um, but most of the music that you do is instrumental. And I was wondering if you think of the pieces that you play as stories. Do you look for a kind of a story in the in the music? Yeah. Uh, well, yes. We, and and for me, a concert or I mean, the recording I've just been talking about has lyrics. Right. And um, but a lot of our work does not have lyrics, but definitely we attempt to bring various sound qualities together and put one thing next to it another that seems like it might lead to a third <laughs> mm. surprise yeah. and uh i think exploring the world this wordless world of of uh, sound possibilities that we get to share with each other. That's something that's right at the heart of our work. And, um, you know, in this time of 
isolation and quarantine, um, missing the, well, I, I miss, my, my instrument is the string quartet. It's not really the violin. I mean, for me, I, I, I play violin in order to be in Kronos. <laughs> I, 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 I wouldn't have the uh, patience to deal with it if I didn't <laughs> uh, uh, get the reward of, of playing in Kronos from, from, let's just put it this way, the violin is an infinitely humiliating uh, taskmaster. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, I, I really miss the the instrument of the audience, and and for me, the audience kind of pulls music out of us. Like you know, we've been doing some recordings in isolation, and then they get edited and they get added on top of each other, and they can sort of they they can sound like us, sort of. They don't quite feel like us because, you know, when, when we do a concert, the audience is so much a part of that, I, I believe. And, and um, uh, so uh, hopefully there will be a time when uh, things can be returning to. I don't, I, I don't think that uh, the way things were before March 12th. 2020 I don't think we're going back to that I, I think we're going to find a new uh, future and a new way of, of uh, for music to be uh, loved and absorbed and, and appreciated but uh, uh, so I'm, I'm not anticipating you know we're going to be uh, uh, playing in Zankel Hall uh, for uh, our audience there anytime soon put it that way so you talked about the quartet is your instrument i mean what do those four voices how do they work together to tell one story because obviously in your mind it's one story when you're looking at a new piece of music or you're playing something for the first time how do they sort of speak together as one well i mean when i think of the uh, what pulled me into the world of string quartet music uh it's it's one chord and i can tell you exactly w which chord it is it's the opening chord of beethoven's opus 127 the first of his late quartets uh it was performed by the budapest quartet and it's from their uh, Columbia recording. I joined the Columbia Record Club when I was 12. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> yeah. And you, did you send in your penny and then you got to choose some LPs? That, that's I, didn't, I didn't get any string quartets, unfortunately, but I, I got some Paul Simon and Neil Young. And <laughs> cool. cool. Well, uh, I was reading a biography of Beethoven at that point, and... Uh, you know, I was hearing about late quartets, and all of a sudden, one of the choices on the Columbia Record Club catalog was Beethoven's late quartet. And I thought, I've got to hear a late quartet. So a few days later, I get I get the, the that record, and um, as soon as I heard that chord, I had to hear it again, and again, and you know. Um, and I realized quickly that I needed to learn how to make that kind of a sound. 
Hmm. And in those days, you could go to the public library and check out the music, the score and the parts. And so I did that. I, I took the bus from my home down, downtown Seattle, checked out the music, called up three friends from the Seattle Youth Symphony. And a few days later, we were in a practice room. And I should tell you that, that um, the violist from that, my very first quartet when I was 12, came to our January concert at Stanford University and I had not seen Christy, in those days her, her name was Christy Nelson, her name now is Christy Williams. I had not seen her for, well, it would be at least 50 years. Mm. And I recognized her immediately. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> that is so cool. When you, uh, but when you're putting... so, so anyway, getting, getting back to, music i mean so so for me that that chord pulled me into this realm and i think i've trusted the power of of certain music certain notes uh certain inflections to notes i've trusted that the rest of my life and you know it's for me, when I hear something that I absolutely have to hear again, mm. that's one of the great things about recordings is you can go, you can hear it again. And, right, right. Uh, you, you know, so uh, kind of getting, just feeling like that power that music can have, just giving into it, letting mm. it control the future. Uh, I, I feel like that that has what that is what has led to uh, each of the musical adventures that we've gotten into. And you said that your history with the violin itself involves some frustration. I mean, what's the what has been sort of your story with with over the years? You know, evolving your playing and your relationship to the instrument. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, did, I didn't really find my uh, teacher, the, the person that, that I could really learn from until mm -hmm. I was 20, 21. And most uh, people that play violin, you, you know, um, start much earlier than that. It, it's not as though I started out at that age, but that's when I found the person I could actually really um, progress with and learn from. And Vita Reynolds was, um, she remained my teacher for 30 years. Mm -hmm. And eventually she moved from Seattle to the North Carolina School of the Arts and then from there to Paris. And as Kronos began to tour in um, uh, throughout Europe, um, I would on every European tour I would be sure to have a few days in Paris, and Vita and I would have four or five lessons in a row. And uh, mm -hmm. sometimes uh, the last lesson I ever had with Vita was 
was um, it was on one note of the lyric suite of Albon Berg that we were about ready to record. And the, the lesson went on for at least four hours. It might have been longer than that. <laughs> and we did, we tried everything together because I, I heard a sound that I needed to make and I could not make my body do it. Mm. <laughs> and so we started, we started thinking about everything we could collectively, the two of us could think about to make this happen. And uh, I got a little bit closer, I have to tell you, I, and I, I know exactly which note it is on our recording of the Lyric Suite. And it's definitely better than it was before that lesson. It's still not what I, it, it's not what I imagine. But then one of the things Vita told me, she said, in fact, this is the last thing she said to me. And I didn't know that I would never see her again. I did not know this. And she didn't know it either. But she said, you know, the great thing about music, it always can be better. <laughs> and uh, that's after working for four hours on one note, okay? <laughs> so frustration with the violin is, it, maybe that's not the right word. It, it's just that it, um, the, there's, never a, uh, there's never a moment when I, when I think that I've done the best that I can do, or that that things have been absolutely balanced in my body. Uh, I do remember, I was telling somebody about this the other day, I remember a certain cue, an upbeat, upbeat, downbeat cue that I gave, and it was in the summer of 1975. I remember it very well, and that was the best one I've ever done. And I haven't done one as good since, <laughs> where where my whole body felt balanced. I, I, it's like you throw a ball up in the air and it came down exactly aligned. Okay, uh, I've been trying. I, I'm telling you, I've been trying as hard as I can, but I haven't done one any better than that since then. <laughs> I mean, if you were going to say if if the violin were a character in a book. Do you have any sense about what it would be like? Do you have any idea about what the personality of the violin is to you as you play it? Well, for me personally, my violin is a she. Mm. Um, and I think she has an infinite ability to sound like aspects of nature that that can only be imagined and hmm. you know um uh i think there's this to me it, it it feels like this this wealth of possibilities that um you know, when when the listening is is heightened and, and the the, the um, emotionally 
we're going for something that none of us have experienced before, none of us have felt, but we know we're, we're reaching something. It feels like the violin itself is supporting that and is, is, is lifting. It's like, I, I think I told you, I just came from a Pilates lesson and one of the things my Pilates teacher talks about is lifting your heart up, you know, sucking in your belly button and lifting everything else up, right? Uh huh. Well, the the violin, you know, when when it's going is the way we always hope it will. The violin is kind of lifting its lifting everything up, and and you can just pull the sound, coax the sound. Um, I remember Vita talked once about. Um, touching the notes on, on, you know, on the, the wood of the fingerboard is hard ebony. It's hard wood, right? Mm. The strings are metal. And, but she talked about touching the strings as though they're flower petals. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, um, the way you touch the string, the way you touch the bow, it can be infinitely um, imagined. Mm. And um, that's what creates the tactility. That's what creates this. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the mind, it's the desire, it's the heart, it's the, it, it's the unknown that actually gives you these possibilities, I believe, but um, whenever I get a chance to, to talk to uh, especially a younger person about uh, violin or, or viola or cello, you know, just, just thinking about how you touch, how you touch the instrument is a really wonderful thing to do. <laughs> and, and uh, you remember how you came to the violin to begin with? Like you were playing when you were 12. How did you first discover the violin? I started when I was nine in, in public school. Um, my family um, had, uh, well, as a family, we watched the Lawrence Welk show and in those days, this would have been around 1956, 57, somewhere in there. Uh -huh. uh, on Lawrence Welk's show, there was a wonderful violinist named Dick Kessner. And Dick Kessner and his Stradivarius. And every week he would play a solo, right? And it, it was just beautiful i i really liked it and um so i asked my parents you know I, and when you're in third grade you you uh in those days you, you would take a music aptitude test and if it was decided that you had some aptitude for music then you could choose an instrument and in fourth grade and the reason that chronos plays for kids in the third grade in the public schools is exactly because uh, 
what happened to me in the third grade was not, not only did was the musical aptitude test uh, available, but uh, there was a group that came to my third grade class. Uh. And I, I saw somebody, I was, I was in the front row, and by the way, if you go to a concert, always get in the front row, it's the best place. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, and so there I was, this, this guy playing, playing violin, and I just liked it. And uh, so if you add that with Dick Kessner, and, and by the way, the, 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 the violinist's name was Henry Siegel, Henry used to play in the NBC Symphony under Toscanini, and he eventually was the concertmaster of the Seattle Symphony. Well, he was the violinist that came to my third grade class. And many, many years later, Henry came to Kronos concerts, and it was, it was so beautiful for me to be able to tell him <laughs> that he, he, what he had uh, done for me. And, wow. Uh, when I know you're a, you've always been a big reader as well. Do you have any sense about the the books that you love? You know, I know you love Moby Dick and a lot of other great books. Is there anything that you see that kind of unifies them or that really draws you to certain books in the story? Wow. You know, I was just looking through some photographs and um, that I've, taken on tour and there's one from uh you know i was in prague and and uh, uh i found out where kafka was buried and, and so i i took the streetcar out to the jewish cemetery and uh i got to go to kafka's grave that was an amazing experience and by that point i had read most of the letters that, that he that had been translated into English, and I, I think I'd read all of his published work, um, and I, I felt a, a, a connection to him. And, and uh, there are other. I mean, right now, for example, I'm I'm reading uh, uh, about fungi. <laughs> <I'm reading> this- <laughs> amazing book by Paul Stamets. It's it's way over my head. I mean, there's all kinds of scientific words that I just, you know, I have to get out my uh, Google uh, translator practically <laughs> to figure some of these things out. But ju- just learning about fungi and um, it, it, it's like reading science fiction or something. It's so, they are so bizarre and wonderful and weird and great. And, uh, um, and I tend to um, uh, kind of follow instinct on, on books and, and not, I mean, I love the letters of Vincent van Gogh, for example. Um, for me, the, well, his, his, his life uh, as, as a painter and as a spirit uh, are a tremendous inspiration. And um, <laughs> I know that, you know, you're, you're in an unusual position because you're so involved in the creation of so many pieces of music. Most musicians are playing things that, you know, they buy at a store or they attain somehow. But you're, you play such a central role in developing so many pieces of music. I was just wondering if knowing the story of the piece of music, if you feel that makes it deeper when you actually play it, 
you know, that having been there for the whole evolution and sort of knowing the, the backstory as it is, um, how does that affect your playing it? Do you have any sense? You know, I played my first world premiere. And what that means is nobody else has ever played this piece in public before. <laughs> and so I, that happened to me when I was 16. And it was such an amazing experience because I felt like, first of all, we had uh, gone over to the composer's home numerous times and the piece evolved week by week over several months. And by the time the concert came, I felt like I had this, I, w I was involved in this secret and this story and this collection of work and ideas that we, we had shared together. Uh -huh. and, and, and so it, it, felt, it felt different than any of the other pieces I'd played up until that point. And what happened to me is I got addicted to that feeling. I was going to use that word, yeah. <laughs> that's that's what happened, and um, so the idea of uh, being there on the ground floor and building something together with others, and having a hand in shaping it, and then and then presenting this. Frequently, the music we play is very personal. It's it's. Uh, Sometimes, I mean, I'm always wanting composers to, to step into the, the center of their lives and hear the sounds that only they can hear from their experience mm -hmm. and to try to find a way of allowing the rest of us in. And for me, that, that, will, that will take us to the most important music we can find, I think. And... and this takes a lot, a lot of, um, well, we have to be lucky. Number one, we have to be, um, our composers have to turn their ears inside out and really listen, really listen. And so there are a lot of conversations that go into this, this music. It's very handmade. Even even when it's we're dealing with machines and computers and and apps and all kinds of things, the music is still very very handmade. I think, and um, I guess when when we walk out on the stage and we we get to present a new piece to an audience. And most of the audience are strangers <laughs> that we've never met before. So here we are. We're trying to bring the innermost sounds of, and some of these composers are very close friends of ours. We're, we're trying to bring the innermost world to an audience. Uh, I just love this. <laughs> I mean, for me, there's nothing that's better than that. In I, I can't, you know... Uh, how could I not want to do that? It's it's just the best. And getting to work with Sonny and Hank and John uh, is priceless. It's beautiful. It's uh, I'm sure um, you know if you were to talk to them, they they 
they'd say something similar. Uh, I'm sure I drive them crazy uh, at times. Uh, that's my job. <laughs> um, and, but I, I think trying to find the inner sounds of incredibly creative and imaginative people, that's something musicians can do. And, and I, I feel like I've trained myself since I was a kid to do this. And I feel like I'm getting better at it every day. And uh, here we are. <laughs> Very cool. Well, thanks, David. I really appreciate your taking the time to speak to me and, uh, you know, giving such thoughtful answers. And really, really a great to great insight into the music and, and the stories behind the music. So thank you. Thank you. The Story Talks Back is produced and hosted by Dave Stanton. The music you're hearing now was written and performed by Christopher Daydream. The theme music at the beginning of our show is an excerpt from Play by Merlin Twelfthoven, performed by Kronos Quartet as part of their 50 for the Future series. Please subscribe to the Story Talks Back on Podbean and check us out on Instagram. See you next time.